fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm Emmett. Cinema Bums is a podcast where we watch through every single movie in popular film franchises, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are continuing our miniseries, What is All This Scream Time Doing to Our Children? Covering every film in the Scream series. We'll fully spoil today's film, but we will not spoil any future entries in the series. Emmett, how are you doing? I'm doing excellently this morning. How about you, Wade? I'm doing good. I just watched this movie. I just finished this movie like an hour ago. Oh, wow. So I feel like back in the day, Mm -hmm. we used to, when we used to do X-Men, when this podcast first started. Yeah. We would watch the movies and then like set up the equipment and like not talk to each other at all. And just like go straight from watching the movie to recording the podcast. Which is a really fun way to do it, I feel like. I love going straight, just like hot off the movie into the into the recording. I think there's definitely a lot of things you miss, though. Like, I feel like those are probably very silly takes compared <laughs> to like when you watch a movie in advance. Do you, you mean that if I had taken time between watching X-Men Apocalypse and reviewing X-Men Apocalypse, I might not have given it the five-star review that I did? <laughs> I actually don't think that. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I'm particularly good because today we're honored to have a special guest. She's a singer, a writer of scary stories, and a tea hawker extraordinaire. Perhaps best known to our audience as the long-awaited third installment in a series of siblings. Please welcome Mariah Daisy Temple. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Mariah. How's it going? Going good. We have completed all of the sibling bumps being on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Is that right, Emma? Yeah. Mariah, had you ever seen any of the Scream movies before watching <laughs> Scream 3? No, I had not. So <laughs> I was thrown into it and a bit confused, but it was enjoyable. So Mariah is the realist because I said, do you want to watch Scream and she was like, yeah, I'd watch Scream for the podcast. And then Wade was like, well, actually, it's going to be Scream 3. And she was still down for it. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is awesome. How confused would you say you were? Well, I didn't realize it's actually I didn't realize till the ending that all these characters. I don't know why, but I didn't realize till the ending that all these characters knew each other before. Oh, And right. I was like a little I was like, oh, they already have backstory with each other. I don't know why I didn't realize that. I didn't really know mm. what any of the Scream movies were about, so. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, only only like three of them, I think, are in the other ones. Right. But there are like 20 people in this movie, so. <laughs> yeah. This movie is bonkers. <laughs> yeah. Just like cast-wise, like the double cast thing is so cool. Right. But deeply confusing trying to just like follow what's like tracking it i was very confused about this so uh, a lot of this film takes place on the set of stab three uh-huh we've seen and in scream two we see that they've made a movie called stab which is about the events of the first scream and it looks like stab three is also about the events of the first movie but with a new cast i think stab three is supposed to be the return to Hillsboro. Oh, okay. So it's supposed to be following the genre stereotypes that Randy lays out for us in his video, te- like Will and Testament. Okay. I, is what I got. I don't think that's very well explained, 
because we never get like a total overview of what the movie is about. Mariah, do you like scary movies in general or is this kind of like a shot in the dark for you? No, I, I do. I do like scary movies. Yeah. My favorite horror movie, I don't know if you've seen this, The Visit, which I'm oh. sure I've talked about to Emmett before. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Is that the one with the grandparents? Yeah. Yeah. People always say that. Yeah. The grandparents one. Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I hate it, but it's good. So, <laughs> well, today let's let's dive into it. We're talking about Scream Three. This was directed by Wes Craven, who directed the first two. Uh, in between Scream Two and this, he directed Music of the Heart. So we talked about his only non-horror movie. Uh, this film was written by a man named Aaron Kruger. Which is, as far as I can see, his real name. But that's funny because Wes Craven invented Freddy Krueger in The Nightmare on Elm Street. Which is pretty crazy. That feels like nominative determinism. Like, if your last name is Krueger, you will write horror movies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this guy, so Kevin Williamson, who wrote the first two, had other stuff going on and couldn't write this one. So they brought this guy on. He's got like a real a real mixed bag of mm-hmm. movies he's written. So the same year he writes Reindeer Games. Then he goes on to write The Ring, which is like his other big horror, the American remake. Then we've got The Skeleton Key and The Brothers Grimm. Weird. Then Transformers 2 through 4. <laughs> Incredible. He writes. And then Ghost in the Shell. Wow. The Scarlett Johansson live action one. The live action Dumbo. And now he's written Top Gun 2. Wow. Truly mixed bag. Have you have either of you seen The Ring? Yeah. No, I haven't. Or what do you think, Mariah? I was also very confused. I was just thinking about the story of um Aunt Dana and like uh with Beatrice and how yeah. she her hair looks like yeah. And also the horse scene. Yeah, the horses are weird. Yeah. Like, I think that whole movie would be less scary without the horses, but I don't know what the horses are doing in the movie. What are the horses? horses we can't talk movie? about it without, like, we can't say more than that without really, like, kind of spoiling kind of the twist of the movie. But there are horses, and they're there creepy. creepy horses for no reason. For no reason, but it also is, like, the hinge <laughs> point of the film somehow. Like, creepy-looking horses? Not, not really. That movie... I don't know. I think that movie is excellent, and I think you would really enjoy it, Wade. Okay. I also think that it's weird and messy, and I think that's mm-hmm. part of why it's cool. I'd always like thought of it as being like one of those early two thousands, just like bad horror, but it is like really smart and is more of like a mystery about this woman like tracking down, unearthing this mystery rather than like a jump scare horror. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has like a super creepy atmosphere. Okay. And apparently was so frightening that it sent our aunt into labor when she saw it. Whoa. She was she was pregnant when she saw it and it was so she blames that on like why she went into labor early. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. And her and her children both look like the girl in, yeah. <laughs> in the movie too. So it's like especially creepy. <laughs> Dude, that's what it should say on the back of the box. Like, that is yeah. the most compelling argument I've heard yeah. to watch the movie. <laughs> For real. Sorry to completely derail this about Kevin no, Williamson. I, or the, no, the other guy, not Kevin Williamson, Kruger. Yeah, Aaron Kruger wrote that, which it, which is a remake, I know, of a Japanese movie. So it was, mm-hmm. I don't think it was, like, his original idea. Yeah. But he wrote the very popular English one. 
Score for this is by Marco Beltrami, as with the previous two. Runs one hour, 57 minutes, released February 4th, 2000 by Dimension Films. So this was the first one that wasn't a Christmas movie and released three years after the last one. It's got bigger budget than the last two, as you could maybe tell when they blew up a house. Yep. I was like, oh, I bet that that house blowing up that house cost as much as the first movie, at least. I'm sure it did. Well, the first movie cost 15 million and this cost 40 million. So way more. They also go on to Hollywood Boulevard at one point in this movie Mm -hmm. for like one shot in the chase scene. So you're like... You're watching the 40 million. Oh, yeah. Oh, that chase scene, too, at the beginning, like, like that whole car scene at the beginning. I was like, wow, that is a big budget car chase action sequence. Mm-hmm. Like taking the car chase sequence from the previous film and just cranking it up by 10. And it got a box office of 161. So a little bit less than the 173 million that the last two made, but only by a little bit. Hmm. Although obviously a much bigger budget, but still like still a commercial success. Yeah. And a mixed critical reception, 56 versus 65 and 63 of the last two. But not not like horrible. Mm-hmm. Those are all the stats. We're not going to get into the whole behind the scenes drama thing. But like the very important context about this movie uh-huh. is that the year before this came out, the Columbine high school shooting happened. Oh, interesting. As a result of that, it was a huge outcry of like, there's so much violence in movies and video games that our kids are seeing. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why this one tragedy happened, you know? So this movie is like very purposefully designed to be like less violent and more comedic than the other two. Mm -hmm. That was sort of like the mandate in making this movie is that it had to be like a kinder, gentler scream than the previous two. It definitely is that. While still somewhat, I mean, I think it still delivers on the scares, but it's certainly not as gory as the first and definitely not as gory as the second. Well, we we can get to that a little bit later, but I was just going to say about like, I don't know how I feel about like, you know, the grounded, realistic violence of the first one Mm -hmm. that you don't really ever get in the second. You definitely don't get it in this one. You don't really ever get it in this one at all. And like the kill at the end is played like the big kill of the villain at the end is played for laughs. Yeah, there are still kills, but you just don't really see any blood. Yeah, it's often off screen. Yeah, like you'll see their face as they get stabbed in the back or something. Yeah, like we've seen some pretty horrible stuff in the past, too. So that's the context for all this. And and what did they do with the story? Okay, so at the beginning of this story, our young uh, protagonist from the first two films, Sidney Campbell, has like tried to basically avoid like escape society and is living alone in the hills in Southern California. She is like has this big ranch house and a dog and is just like living there by herself, very well protected because she's terrified that another person is going to try and come and finish the job of the first two sets of killers. And lo and behold, while they are filming Stab 3, a movie based on events from her life. The people on the set of Stab 3, starting with Leah Schreiber's character, Cotton Weary, who is now a talk show host mm-hmm. a few years after the events of the second movie. And he's going to be in a cameo in this film and be the first one to die in the third third Stab movie. He and his girlfriend are also the first to die. They get killed early on. And eventually, as other members of the cast of Stab 3 start dying off and various uh, getting killed off in various ways, they put together that someone is killing off the characters, the real life characters and the actors in the order that they are to be killed 
they're like written to be killed in the script for the movie, mm-hmm. which is like this whole weird, like frame on a frame on a frame thing that this movie is doing. And they've built a set of the original set inside a soundstage. And I think all the stuff where they're like chasing through the house, but the house isn't a real house is so cool. Like when she opens the door and like almost falls, like she's like, she knows her house. So she runs into the room and there's no room there. I think that stuff yeah, is incredible. Yeah, that part's cool. That is the part where I texted you, this movie slaps. Oh, that <laughs> was like the one part I really liked yeah. that I wrote down. This is good. Yeah. And so then um, eventually Sydney gets drawn back into it as she realizes what's been going on. There's a thing where only a few people know where Sydney is. Her location is kept very, very tight under wraps because she assumes that somebody is going to be coming for her. Um, So it's kind of a split at the beginning. It's a split narrative. You're following the new cast of actors who are playing all of the characters from the first two movies, but they are B list Hollywood actor versions of the A listers that we've seen in the first two movies. At the same time, Sydney is having all of these flashbacks about her mom, thinking that she's seeing ghosts of her mom because she kind of, she's come around to a point where she like blames her mother for everything that's happened. At the end of the first movie, we find out that the reason her mother was killed, and that's kind of the the inciting incident for the whole series, is that she was sleeping with a couple of other men in the town besides her father, one of whom was the dad of Sydney's boyfriend, and that split up that family. So Sydney's boyfriend from the first movie had previously killed her mother. Cotton Weary had been put up for it and then let off. We thought that the person who killed Sydney's mom, the real the real killers were Billy and Stu from the first movie and that they had died in the first film. And so that like everything was settled with her mom. But she like still kind of blames her mom for everything that happened. And as she's having this sort of thing, at the same time, the killer in this movie is leaving pictures of her mom when she was a young woman at all of the sites where the like where the murders happen. And so there's kind of like, like, once again, that whodunit aspect of like, who's behind all of this? What's going on? I don't know. It's very, it's like a very convoluted plot. I think it's more convoluted than the first two by a good measure. But eventually it comes out that the person who's behind everything is the director of the movie. The director of the movie is also secretly Sydney's older brother, who she never knew she had, who her mom had while she was an actress in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. for two days who is we kind of get the idea that that he is like the kid that she had from like whatever horrible thing happened where she went to the like producers party yeah we gotta talk about all of that we yeah we got i mean that is just like a whole mess to get into because of who produced this movie as yeah. well <laughs> and so like i mean the the layers in that are wild to me but but that she that we find out that her mom had been an actress for a couple of years in Hollywood as a young woman, that there was this sleazy director that, or a sleazy producer there and that he had had parties and that, like, you know, there were young women being taken advantage of in different ways at these parties and that her mom was one of those people. And she had a son. That son was this director that we see throughout the film. He turns out to be Sydney's older brother. At the end of the movie, he's trying to kill her because mama always loved you best and like didn't accept me like mama didn't accept me and like always loved you best like 
They managed to kill him. And it's also revealed that he was behind all of it from the beginning, that he was the one who set things up so that Billy Loomis and Stu would kill uh, Sydney's mom in the before the first one and like kind of set them on their course. He like shot video of the mom sleeping with Billy's dad Mm -hmm. and showed that to Billy to like get him angry. Yeah. And then like nudged him in a direction. Which is also interesting because it recontextualizes everybody's motivation from the first movie too. I would say it retcons everyone's motivation from the first movie. Yes, I would agree as well. Also in this movie, of course, are David Arquette and Courtney Cox. Uh, Once again, they are split up at the beginning of this movie. (laughs) Um, After having been together and deciding it couldn't work, there's tension. David Arquette is kind of like in now, like kind of in some pseudo relationship with the woman who is playing Gail Weathers in the new movie. Uh, So that's weird. He's kind of like stuck between two Gales. But at the end, he and Courtney Cox, uh, he proposes to her and didn't know this. They were actually married at the time. Her name comes up in the credits as Courtney Cox Arquette. And I was like, no way. Yeah, I think it's 99 is when they get married, right? Before That's this. A, a new development. Yeah. And they were married from 1999 to 2013 and have a kid together. What I really want to know mm-hmm. is like, what's it going to be like in the new one? Because they're both in it, presumably still married. I mean, we haven't seen four, but now they're divorced in real life. Are they still like playing husband and wife in the movie? I think that'd be interesting. Compelling. Yeah, it would definitely be compelling, but by four when is when did four come out 2011 so they're still together in 2011 although i heard i read that they got separated in 2010 oh i'm not sure whether that was before or after filming interesting four we don't really go usually go in for the celebrity gossip thing on this podcast but this is spicy (laughs) and i love both of them uh well at least they met on the first film Oh, well. well, yeah. And so and at the end of this movie, they are together again. They and Sydney, the two of them and Sydney are all living together on a on a ranch. And it also looks like Sydney might be hooking up with a hot cop from this movie mm-hmm. uh, or the hot detective from this movie. And like everybody looks like they're living happily ever after with like no stinger. Like at the end, the door blows open, which has been like this kind of this signifier for creepiness and weirdness mm-hmm. throughout the movie. And she just like looks at it and like breathes and like lets it go. And it's like, it was just the wind. And it's like, I really, I really like the ending. I don't know about some of the other stuff that goes on in this movie, but I love that last little ending bit. It's a nice gesture, but I still would have closed the door. Yeah. You don't have to be scared of a door being open to close the door. <laughs> True. Yeah. Mariah, we'll start with you. Would you, would you say Scream 3 was a flop or a bop? Yeah, I did say that it was a bop. It was it was thoroughly uh, scary in some moments, so and that's all it really needs. I feel like so I didn't understand a lot of it, but um, it had a good amount of blood and stuff. So Emmett, flop or bop? I would say bop. I think this one remains fun. I think for me, the comic stuff in this works better than some of the horror stuff in this, and I feel like we don't get any of those like truly epic sequences like we got. Uh, in the last two, where it's just like tension, tension, tension. Yeah. It almost feels like it's a different genre. It almost feels like it's no longer a slasher or even a slasher satire and has moved into like action satire. Yeah. I still enjoyed the hell out of watching it. How about you, Ed? Uh I would say it was a flop. 
for me personally. I just thought it was really bad, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think the problem is that they had to make it less bloody. Yeah. I don't think that is the problem. I do wonder if Wes Craven kind of felt like he couldn't go... Like, he couldn't be as creative, like you're saying, Emmett, that there aren't sort of these, like, 20-minute-long crazy sequences that we got mm-hmm. in the others. But, like, I don't think that is the problem with the movie. I just don't even know what's going on in this movie. <laughs> or, like, what this movie is about. Or who anyone is. And, okay, something that and something that really bothered me uh-huh. is that everyone is acting kind of like a dumb character in a horror movie in this one. That's true. In a way that the first two are making fun of. In this one, they have like, it kind of feels like they have become what they're always parodying. That's true. I don't know. I thought it was really weird that it started with like the shower scene. Uh Uh-huh. That even in this movie, they're like making fun of. And the other two movies are always making fun of. Yeah. All the horror stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. A flop for me. Well, we like to start off with the big question. So let me ask, Emmett, was your love for Gail Weathers strong enough to survive the bangs in this movie? Honestly, no. (laughs) It it wasn't. Uh, I was like, this is atrocious. What has she done? Like the 2000s, like the 2000s hit like a hard bang line and just like ruined something. Yeah, it's rough. She's wearing the McDonald's, the Ronald McDonald suit for one scene in this movie, too, which is really weird. Yeah. But yeah, the hair. everyone at home, Google Gail Weathers Scream 3, and you'll see what we're talking about. Especially after, like, in the first one, just, like, looking normal, and the second one looking like hot 90s alt girl. This one, this one is just tragic. A rough makeover for her. Yeah. I like Sydney's makeover. It's, like, subtle... But she just, like, looks... She's really doing, like... They joke about it in the second one, I think. But she's really doing it in this one. Kind of, like, doing the Linda Hamilton... Is it Linda Hamilton? Terminator 2 thing? Mm-hmm. Where she's, like... She's training. She's, like, in active gear in this one. She's, like, ready to fight. She's trying to avoid it. But, like, when the time comes, she's, like, ready for it. And I do like the action sequence. Like, the fight that she has at the end. I don't think it's a good scare sequence. But I do think it's a good fight sequence. Well, Mariah, let's talk... What did you like about it? I loved the scene where, um, I forget who it was, but they were like standing in the racks of all the ghost face costumes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cause I thought that that was creepy, you know, like that was good. And then the other like really creepy moment is when the girl who plays Sydney, the actor of Sydney, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Like the fake Sydney, when she was like in the bathroom with the real Sydney and like they were in there and she got up onto Uh, the toilet and she like picked it open and uh, she had the ghost face mask in her hand. That was horrifying. That was horrifying. And I, I really thought it was her. I didn't who was like the killer, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they do a good job on implicating that girl throughout the whole movie and like dropping, yeah. dropping subtle red herrings that it's her yeah. throughout the whole movie. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. I really liked that. Yeah. I was really shocked that it wasn't her. Yeah. yeah. So was I. Yeah. Also, that it wasn't the detective because there's a lot of little yeah. things with him too yeah i think it's him i also really like in this movie the moment where they talk about how there's three different versions of the script and that the killer has read one of them but they're not sure which one uh-huh 
it's gotten leaked on the internet, but yeah. like we don't know which because that like ties into like the real world stuff around the second movie where the script actually got leaked. Yeah, I like that joke too. And I also like the stuff where Randy comes back. Wade, you were mm-hmm. talking last episode about how mu- how much of a disservice it was to kill off Randy, but I like that we got him at least for like the laying out the ground rules for episode three. And it did feel like something that Randy would actually do. So it didn't feel like weird and unmotivated. Like it would yeah. have in like I think sometimes that stuff feels a little weird when it's like, oh, I recorded this in case I died, and it gives you exactly what you need to uh, like defeat the bad guy. Yeah. But or like Tony Stark being the voiceover for the end of four Avengers movies in a row. <laughs> like oh, yeah. the, in case I die, Tony Stark monologue being the you know. Or um Emma Stone's graduation speech in Spider-Man 2 being like the exact thing he needs to hear after she's died. And um, it's like written just for him and he mm-hmm. hears it after. Oh, I had something to say. Oh yeah, this movie also makes a joke about like people being really pissed that Randy died in the second staff oh, yeah. movie. Yeah. I also like seeing him again. I thought we were gonna get some cool stuff with his sister. Because there's like this funny female Randy we're introduced to. Yeah. Who then has three lines and is not in the movie after that. I don't know. I felt like I recognized her for something. She gets the that guy award for me in this movie. Oh, I think she was in the Princess Diaries. I think she's like her best friend in the Princess Diaries. Oh, I have that written down in my notes. I just said Princess Diaries. Like That must have something to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when they first introduced her and dropped her out immediately, I was like, well, that was kind of weird. But I think she's there to foreshadow there's going to be a sibling that you don't know about. Um, I th- hmm. like I don't know if it was done, executed well enough, but I felt like that was kind of like the theme that they were running on with her. I liked the twist of this one. Mm. I liked it better than the Oliphant twist in the second one. And I was glad that the mom was not actually alive. Yeah. All of that dream stuff where the mom is like talking to her and then it's the ghost face is super creepy and also so not in the style of the first two screams. The one scene is so lame where her mom is like scratching at the window. Yeah. (laughs) That scene. Well, it's very, it's very Nightmare on Elm Street is what I was thinking when I was watching Mm. it. It's like Mm. much that dreamy, like creeping horror that's different than the slasher horror. Mariah, what did you think of like the ultimate reveal that it was the director and her brother? I totally suspected the girl who was playing Sydney. I mean, mm-hmm. I just thought she was so creepy from the beginning. And then I also, the moment when the cop guy, the detective, like is pointing a gun at her and he comes from the spot where Ghostface was, that was like right. confusing to me. I don't know how he got there. And it was only seconds after. So I, I thought it was him. Then afterwards, I, I would have never guessed. Roman. Okay. It's also interesting. This is the first one where it hasn't been two killers. In yeah. both of the previous ones, it's you think it's one killer right up to the end, and then it turns out to have been two people working together. Um, and this is the only one where he seems to have done it single handedly. I also love getting a uh, Patrick Warburton in this movie. Oh yeah, Sh- he's just yeah, he's just so <laughs> so good in that Who's one. He playing? He's playing Stone. Stone. <laughs> this is his character's name. <laughs> Like that speech that he has to, I think it's really just, he's in that, those two scenes, uh, but he has that speech to David Arquette mm-hmm. where he talks about his resume versus Dewey's resume. It's so good. What do you think about the Gail Weathers actress? I really liked her. 
And that was one of the only times when the movie was like really gelling for me was when uh-huh. the two of them were like on some sort of detective case together. I really liked that. And I I'll definitely thought that either that was going to continue or she was going to be the killer because of like how much we liked her. I was just fascinated every time she was on screen. I was legitimately, it's rare where you see a person where you're like, I have no idea what they're going to do next. But, <laughs> but that she was one of them. Like, not a clue. Parker Posey? Oh, okay. I've only seen Parker Posey, like, now. So I did not realize that was her. Yeah. She's in Superman Returns. That's mainly what I know her from. And then in that sequence, too, they see Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> such do. a lovely little bit. She says, yeah, and they gave it to the one who slept with George Lucas. <laughs> yeah, which, like... I mean, maybe we should talk about that now. Yeah, let's just go ahead and do it. Just, I feel like there's not much to say about it, but there is like this whole element of this movie that is about Hollywood producers like being predators to young actresses, mm-hmm. which is particularly relevant because all of these movies are produced by Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, so what do you make of that? <laughs> I don't know. Shocking. Like, they're in plain sight is certainly what I make of it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting that I feel like he is the first, like, actual example I can think of where, like, a big Hollywood producer was, like, ousted for this. But this, like, has been a stereotype, like, forever, you know? Yeah, it is not, like, it's not new news. I feel like people were making movies about this as long as they've been making movies. They've been making movies about how the movie industry is predatory. Kind of the same thing, not to get, like, more dower but like the catholic priest like child yeah. uh molestation thing that's uh-huh. another thing where like the story broke in like the early 2000s or whatever yeah in like the boston globe but that's another thing that people had like just joked about forever yeah because people knew it was going on you know yeah um so i don't know i was reading that there was like a post 2017 reevaluation of this movie mm. specifically because of Harvey's involvement in it and of like what it's saying, just like a big part of the whole thing that a lot of people were seeing it as like very publicly speaking out against that stuff while directly involved with him. Mm. I mean, it's definitely really strange of him to make, but I, I don't really see a problem with the movie just because he is. I mean, the message yeah. is the same, I think. Also, it's mm-hmm. like how much direct involvement do those producers, like that level of producers, have in the movie? Right. In the movie making, like they have a lot of influence, but in the industry, but direct on set. So yeah. this is what, so this is in 2019, I guess someone asked the editor of this movie mm-hmm. about this um, and what he had to say. This is interesting. He said, Wes was very interested in the producer being not the main villain, but the catalyst for the villain's motivation. Hmm. The producer is really the spark for the events of the entire series. Oh, interesting which also mirrors actual production because the producer like comes with the money it's just one of those things where you wonder like harvey weinstein produced this movie so like how did he feel watching this movie this is the thing i think about like all the recent disney movies that are all about how corporations are bad (laughs) or about how there is like a corrupt head of a corporation who only wants greed and like can't see the art and the people involved yeah that is what like every live action Disney movie has been about the last five years. And I'm like, how do the heads at Disney feel when they watch this movie? You know, Damn. of like the biggest corporation in the world. Like, 
I mean, it's like it it reminds me of the thing of like David Harbour having Karl Marx tattooed across his knuckles. Mm. You know, it's just like, you, you know what I mean? I, yeah, it's totally. like it's all in the same. It's all in the same wheelhouse. It's like writers and artists who are probably honestly, in all, in all honesty, closer to, uh, to closer to our tax bracket than they are to the tax bracket of the people who own the companies, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, who are like writing and like are the creative minds behind these things trying to say something or at least like remembering when they were as poor as we are and like trying to say something about that. Mm-hmm. But like they're they're making mad profits off that and they're profiting even more for a giant and like kind of by nature sinister at the very least corporations. So I don't know. Weird. I've got a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. Cool. So they decided to make this movie in 1999, two years after. Uh, and Kevin Williamson, who wrote the first two, couldn't come back because he was working on like eight other projects at this point. But he wrote a 30 page story, which was expanding on his original five page mm-hmm. story treatment. When he wrote the first one, he wrote like five pages about what two would be about and five pages what three would be about. And then he expanded it into the story for this one. And so this is his version. This is his Scream 3 story treatment was that they were going to be filming the stab movie in Woodsboro, like Mm. the real Woodsboro, when like real attacks start happening again. And they go through the whole movie basically. And that the end reveal of his original script was that the killers were the entire Woodsboro high school film club. Whoa. That it is like, there's a big like new high school cast of this movie and a lot of them get killed and at the end, Sydney like goes into a room where everyone who has been killed throughout the entire movie is, and they like all get up and they're all it's that there are like fifteen killers. Oh. And they're all like huge fans of the stab movie who are like destroying the set. And then like the ending was going to be that that was sort of all being orchestrated and influenced by Stu, who had like lived and was in prison and was orchestrating all of this behind the scenes. Oh, interesting. From the from the first movie. I feel like that's less of a retcon to say that Stu is still alive. Mm-hmm. Because we don't see, we see Stu get stabbed and like is bleeding out, but he's never like... He doesn't get headshotted like Billy does. Yeah, he doesn't get a headshot. And like we, we have talked before about how this mo- these films are very loosey-goosey about who can survive what in terms yeah. of, of vicious stabbings. <laughs> I mean, I don't know without seeing it whether this movie would have been much better or not. Sure. But that does strike me as more of the classic third thing, which is like tie it back to the first one. Right. Which is what even what Randy says is going to be. Yeah. Can we uh, do you remember what Randy's rules for thirds are? He says the main character can die, which they're trying to set you up that Sydney might die in this movie. Yeah. The past isn't dead. If you think there's something in the past it's going to come back and get Mm -hmm. you and that the villain will be superhuman is something that he says. Right. 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 Which I'm very glad that it wasn't. I'm very glad it wasn't supernatural. Now, wait a minute. What? There is a very sci-fi thing we have to talk about in this movie. What's that? Which is that someone has made a voice changer that can like replicate anyone's voice. Yeah. It's not just the creepy crackly voice concealer now that does the Sydney. Sydney. That's pretty good, Emmett. Thank you. 
Yeah, in the first two they have it, but it's just like a one voice changer. But in yeah. this one, they can just like say anything in anyone's voice, which is like a cool concept that I wish was maybe even like more explored in this movie, but also like such a crazy sci-fi thing. Yeah, it's like a James Bond gadget almost. I really loved the voice changer. I thought it was cool, but I didn't realize that they didn't have it in the before movies. It's all, yeah, I mean, it's confusing, but I really liked it. I think it's really cool in the first sequence with Leo Schreiber. Yeah. Especially because yeah. his voice is so distinctive. I feel like mm-hmm. even more than a lot of the other characters. So it really like sells it, I think. I don't know. So that was the original, the original script. And it was like totally ignored by the studio because they just didn't want to place it near a school or have students. Oh, right. Get high schoolers involved in any way. And apparently Kevin Williamson used it for his 2013 TV series, The Following. Interesting. So then the studio hires Aaron Kruger, uh, who says that he takes the job to work with Craven, but he admitted that he did not know the characters very well Hmm. and like didn't really know their voices. There actually was, I didn't write this down, but since you mentioned it, there was a specific example that he was talking about writing Sydney a lot like Linda Hamilton oh, from Terminator. And that Wes Craven was like, that's not her. She's not an action hero. Yeah. Aaron Kruger was saying that Wes Craven did like a lot of uncredited work on the script. Oh, interesting. To try and get it more like the other movies. What a cool guy. I mean, really, you like you talked about it last time, but like Wes Craven, cool, like cool dude. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And this was like kind of the same thing as the last one where they just like did not this one. It seems like even more like they did not have the story ahead of time. Mm. So they were just like getting this, the scenes the morning they were shooting them Damn. or they were shooting multiple versions. I read that there was like a lot of stuff that was just up in the air. So like just to be safe, they would shoot like several different takes with all kinds of stuff. Wow. Like it said, they shot a version of the ending like. One with the cop, one without the cop, and one with the cop with his arm bandaged up, hmm. which is like the version we saw, just because they weren't sure like how they were going to end his story. Hmm. And it said they shot like three hours of Randy talking and saying all kinds of different stuff so they could like shape it into whatever they needed it to be. Wow. So they just like did not know what this was. Um, and, and I called this. Uh-huh. I want to say that I called this while I was watching the movie, uh-huh. uh, which is that Neve Campbell could only shoot for 20 days. So they had to have her like not be in the movie very much as Sydney. Oh, interesting. Because I kind of feel like this movie solves the Sydney problem that I, we've seen in the last two films of her, like not being a super strong forward momentum protagonist by just taking mm. her completely out of it and making, I guess, Gail and Dewey the protagonists. Yeah, who would you two say is, like, the main character of this movie? I would say the real Gale. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I would say it comes the closest to being her. But I don't know if this movie is really sure who the main character is. I'm certainly not. It ending with her and Dewey getting engaged feels like more of, like, a full circle arc than than anything Sydney has going on in this movie. That's why I assume why she's kind of only in the second half and why she spends so much of the movie like in a house by herself. Yeah. Because I bet they could shoot that stuff in like a day, basically. Right, right. All of her her dreams and calls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I was confused. She lived in a treehouse in the woods 
but like she was scared of being attacked by somebody I just don't she was living alone in the woods I just really didn't understand that like I don't know I thought about that too but I think it's because like she's so afraid like she's very famous now for being involved in all of this stuff and like the the stab movies are making her even more so I feel like she feels like the more people she's around the more likely she is that one of those people will attack her and she's had experiences in the past two movies of like people in crowds like crowds being very dangerous places to be because you can't like tell where the map where like who's who and like i also felt like they were setting up stuff to happen in that house that never happened because like the fact that it's got like all of those locks i was like oh that's gonna come back and bite her in the ass when she has to like unlock four different locks to get out of the house and like the killer's right behind her but it never it never did yeah and also when she was like answering calls for those for like people in mm. who needed help at her house it just seemed like something was going to come to her at the house because it looked like she was safe but i don't know the last thing i have and we'll get into the segments is that the film was uh poorly compared at the time to Wes craven's movie before scream which was called new nightmare oh interesting it was the only uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie he directed other than the first one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of similar to this movie. It is about like the real world where they are making Nightmare on Elm Street movies mm-hmm. that are like very schlocky and like over the top. And then like the real Freddy Krueger, who they thought was just a fictional character starts invading their dreams and like killing everyone who is making these movies. I believe Wes Craven is a character in that movie, if not an actor. I think it's like actually supposed to be like the real guys, the real directors and people. I would like to watch that one, but I don't know if I would have to put myself through watching the other like five nightmares in between, you know? Well, I bet Wes Craven did not watch them, so... (laughs) Let's start with best kill, which can can involve sequences where people aren't actually killed, but sort of best scary set piece sequence in the movie. Mariah, what was what was your fave? I thought it was a creepy moment when um, the fake Sydney was kind of like, well, she like ran away from them. And then the next part they see her, I think Sydney and somebody else, they see her like being dragged and just her face and it like moves across. They think she's like looking up at them, but then her her body just gets dragged away. It's kind of creepy. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but her like face is staring. They're on like the second story. They're up above her and they're looking down. Yeah, that was, that was creepy. Emmett? Uh, there's no set piece that I think is like as good as the ones um, mm. in the first two. I do kind of like the house explosion kill. (laughs) I like think it is in, I think it's like the only one that shows me something that they haven't like an idea that they haven't Mm. done before. And I do think, I do think that's pretty cool, but I also want to just shout out not the kill, but the moment where Patrick Warburton is on the phone with who he thinks is Dewey and says something about like how he's like, like he killed your sister and on the phone, it sounds like a zoo. He's like, I can't believe you said that. Why would you say that? Yeah, which is the only acknowledgement we've ever gotten of Dewey yeah. talking about his sister. It's not even really Dewey. Yeah. Uh, wait, what would you say? Yeah, I don't know. I like the moment that we already called out where she's in like the house set and rushes into a room and then it's not built out. So she's just oh, uh-huh. like running into the second story. And I also like the payoff of that moment when Ghostface runs through it and she's like waiting on the wall and pushes him down. Yeah. That's really cool. We're going to move to our MVP, OTP. 
our most valuable player other than the protagonist. So we'll take the real Sydney off of the table. But other than that, who is everyone's MVP for this movie? Mariah, you get first pick. Definitely fake Gail Weathers, or I think her name was Jennifer. Ooh, uh-huh. She was, I mean, we were talking about it before, but she definitely brought the most, this, um, she was the most interesting, I think. How does she die? I feel like she's in the basement, I think, or like some lower part of the house. I forget. She's like following the director, who I guess has like faked his death in the basement. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, 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 I remember. It's like the scene with the mirror closet, I think, and he's like shoot, and he shoots uh, a gun. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they yeah. shoot her. Uh huh. Yeah. As as he's stabbing her. That part was pretty cool. Also, very cool is the scene where Sydney has two guns in her boots. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, cool. that was cool. Which does feel like you were saying, I mean, like maybe more of like an action movie sort of thing to do. Yeah. Emma, who's your MVP? I really like Jennifer as well. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah, I'll go with I'll go with creepy Sydney with creepy Sydney actress because I think she does a lot to convince you that it's her and like yeah. throw you off the scent, and so I think that's pretty cool. And she's just weird. Wait, um, I think mine also would have been Jennifer. Yeah, <laughs> I think is a big fave in this movie. So other than her, I think I would maybe give it to. Patrick Dempsey as the detective Mm -hmm. because I felt like some of that stuff was like what was working the best in the movie there was a scene like maybe halfway or a little bit closer where it's sort of like him and Sydney and Gail and Dewey Mm -hmm. and they're like trying to get to the bottom of things they're all like throwing evidence out and like talking through Mm -hmm. and I thought that scene was like really well done and I was like maybe if the movie was more of this yeah like, I felt like when we were with him in the detective scenes was pretty good. Yeah. I also like his partner, um, his funny comic relief partner. Yeah. I wish there was more of an ending for the detective. He's there with popcorn. He's Sydney's boyfriend, I guess, maybe. <laughs> I just wish we saw, like, a little more explicitly. I just want to see it. I was very happy to see the Dewey-Gale engagement scene, you know? Mm-hmm. I just yeah, want to see... See these characters get some happiness after all they've been through. Yeah. This was like the end of the trilogy. They eventually made another one 11 years later. But like if this was the last Scream movie, like feel like everything was wrapped up, would you be happy with where it all ends? I think I would be happy. I mean, they're on a, I think they're on like some kind of ranch. I mean, I feel like ranch life is the best, best ending (laughs) you can hope for after all that trauma. Yeah, I think I... Yeah, I love that. Like, there was a classic fade into mountains. But, like, there was her face. She was very serious. Mm. And then it, like, faded. Yeah. I, I think it had a good ending. And the proposal scene, I really liked that. I think it ties up everything in a really good way. And it's, like, she finally... I think it's cool because she finally understands, like, why it all happened. You know, she's obviously going to have to deal with this for a long time. But, like, that might go a long way into helping deal with it is, like, knowing why. And, like, also feeling like she's finally defeated, like, the one person who was really behind it. And, like, she's finally safe. And also, you know, loving the Dewey and Gale ending there. Something I kind of thought about this movie is that, like, it's clear in the last two movies that they, like, have something to say Mm -hmm. about this period in time where they're saying that horror movies are influencing kids to, like, actually commit murder and do horrible Mm -hmm. things, right? Like, that is, like, something on the last two movies' mind. 
But then in this movie, it's like all it has to say. It is yeah. like obsessed with the idea. It This movie feels to me like the friend you have that is like, you really like them and they're a lot of fun to hang out with, but they have like a couple uncomfortable views that you don't really agree with. Mm-hmm. And then this movie is like when they have just gone off the deep end and it is like all they're able to talk about. <laughs> And, and you like can't hang out with them without them just like rambling for two hours about what political thing they hate or what their <laughs> conspiracy theory is, you know, mm-hmm. like that this movie starts with like a big Hollywood producer meeting where they're like, there's so much real world violence. We might have to shut your movie down after that yeah. actually happened, you know? Yeah. Let's give our final thoughts on Scream 3 and then we'll wrap things up with a little quiz here. Let's see. Mariah, any final thoughts? Anything else you'd like to mention about Scream 3? I really liked the one part I just written down where it was like, uh, it was like, it's your turn to scream now. I don't know what that was. I don't know who said that. <laughs> yeah. But I wish it, I, I wrote down that I wish it was the last scene. Mm. And that, like, if it would just cut to, like, them on their ranch or whatever, I would have been okay with it, I think. Because then it would just went into that whole fight thing and stuff. But that's all I have to say. Emmett, final thoughts? I should mention that Emmett is a director. He directs. Yeah, I'm a director and an older brother. So, like, (laughs) it's really not looking great. I did think this movie had, like, fun. I did like a lot of the fun bits of him, like, being a whiny director. And I thought this movie had some pretty good digs at directors Mm -hmm. in it, which I love. I, I always love whenever industry stuff kind of, like, makes fun of itself. It's fun. That's about it. I think this movie is really bad, which I'm sad to say. But, like, it is. I don't think Wes Craven should have come back for this material. Yeah. Like, I felt like he should have just given it to someone else, like, the bad Nightmare movies. Or he should have... It seems like he was, like, trying to turn the ship around. But Mm -hmm. I feel like he had a lot stacked against him. I'm excited to see what happens in the future still. I like sort of where this leaves the characters. I also like the the ultimate revelation where they're like uh, what Sydney says in the final scene where you're like stop acting like you killed anyone for any other reason than you want to. Uh, you know? Yeah, she's like take responsibility. You kill people because you want to kill people, which mm-hmm. I feel like is what these three movies have all been trying to say, and it like, yeah. finally sets it here. I've gotten like progressively more and more excited watching these to see whatever they have done with the new one with Scream Five. I'm excited to see where the next two go to like take two gaps of 10 years between each of the next two. It's pretty, pretty interesting. I'd also say, I do think that rise of Skywalker bears shocking similarities to this film. Okay. Lay it on me. A huge amount of like new exposition, new backstory, (laughs) new Uh characters that you didn't even know were alive who now aren't dead. And like, also still an exact retread of the first two movies and with a silly and overlong action sequence at the end. I don't know what other similarities need to be drawn there, but yeah, when, when Randy comes on and is like, if you find yourself with a lot of exposition, new back character, like new characters and backstories that you didn't know about, you are no longer in a sequel. You are in the third installment of a trilogy. I'll just like <laughs> love that. It feels very real. 
feel like I would probably rather rewatch Rise of Skywalker than this movie. Although I would not be excited to do either. <laughs> I will eventually rewatch Rise of Skywalker. Mm-hmm. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's time for our favorite segment of every week. Bums the word. Our quiz. Uh, I have here five movies that I will give hints about. And you two will be guessing whoever guesses the movie correctly first gets a point. Whoever has the most points at the end wins. These movies are picked from a 2020 article in BuzzFeed by Hannah Martyr entitled The Worst TV and Movie Hairdos That Should Have Never Made It On Screen. They have crowned Gail's Bangs and Scream 3 as the worst of the worst, the worst hairstyle ever on film. Now, to be a little fair, I think looking at this list that is more the worst hairstyles and movies that this writer has seen, because mm. they are very much like all in a similar time frame, these movies. Okay. Gotcha. But um, who am I to argue? Okay. Movie number one. Just shout out any guesses as you have them. Movie number one is a 1999 romantic comedy. It is based on kind of structured around a classic story, but like a modern retelling of that story. It is set at a high school. Is it 10 Things I Hate About You? It is. Oh my God. And whose who's haircut are they bashing in that? They're bashing the prom look from the main girl. Oh. Cat's like, prom updo in 10 Things I Hate About You. Okay. She said, this gelled back updo with the fake flower is the epitome of 2000s prom, and I didn't even attend one. It's not that bad. Movie number two is a 2003 comedy. This is based on a novel, a much older novel. This is the third film adapting this novel. All three of them are from the same company, but this is like the most popular version by far. This is a big hit comedy. Kind of a family film, I would say, like appropriate for all ages and also about family dynamics. Is it cheaper by the dozen? Nope. There is kind of like a sci-fi premise to this. There is like a supernatural thing that has happened. And the movie is about this family dealing with dealing with this supernatural thing. But not scary in any way. Stuart Little? No. It's specifically about a mother and a daughter, one of whom is played by a classic horror movie actress. Comedy with a sci-fi premise? Yep. Based on a book. Uh Uh-huh. Is it Freaky Friday? It is Freaky Friday. Is that Jamie Lee Curtis in Freaky Friday? Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is the mom and Lindsay Lohan is the daughter. Two points for Emmett. Still anyone's game. Whose hairstyle were they bashing in that? Lindsay Lohan's highlights in Freaky Friday. I've got to say, the picture is pretty bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, Movie number three is the oldest movie on this list. It is a 1988 comedy. This is from very famous director with, like, very distinct style. One of those guys where pretty much all of his movies, like, you know what to expect when this guy is making a movie. And this is one of his early hits. I have not seen this movie, so I don't know exactly, but there is like a big supernatural element to this. I don't think it's like actually a scary movie, but it is like horror adjacent. It is sort of a comedy set within like a spooky horror sort of world. Hmm. The lead actor, 
uh what to say about him he's a guy we talk about every now and then a guy who is still famous today has been acting in movies since the 80s regularly playing like this character is like now kind of famous is it beetlejuice yes well done (laughs) okay it is Beetlejuice. Have, have either of you seen Beetlejuice? I've not seen it, but you said like iconic character today, and for some reason, like it's really big yeah. today. I saw it once when I was younger. It's not scary, right? It is like a comedy. It is just like kind of silly. It's more like gross out horror. Like the horror stuff is more just like ugh, mm-hmm. and like a couple of jump scares than it is like overall creepy. Um, it is specifically Lydia's bangs in Beetlejuice. Okay, movie number four. And I will say I take issue with this because I like, I'm a big fan of the haircut in particular. So this is bagging on, but it is a bold haircut. This movie is a 2010 musical. It says musical adventure film. I'd say that's kind of accurate. It is sort of like a big fun family adventure. It is an animated movie. Is it Tangled? Yes. But, oh. oh, wow. Hell yeah. Well, I guess. Wait, whose hair do they not like entangled? Uh, it is yeah, right. all about hair. So they are taking issue with, spoilers for Tangled, the end of Tangled when Rapunzel gets oh. the pixie cut and, and it's brunette instead of uh, instead of long and blonde like it is for the rest of the movie. People are so rude about that scene. Yeah, he had to do it. I prefer it. Here we go into the final one and the game is tied. Our final movie is a 2011 superhero film. One of the earlier movies in a big superhero franchise. Is it from the MCU? It is an MCU movie. It is a Marvel movie. It is in the first phase of the Marvel movies. Who has especially bad hair? I will I will say that the character who this article is citing is the villain of this movie. Not the hero. Interesting. Although there is a, a kind of famous unfortunate thing about the hero's appearance in this movie. <laughs> Too <laughs> physical thing, not the haircut. What to say? What to say about this movie? This is so, I mean, obviously adapted from a comic book character, but also from like even further back kind of a folklore character. Is it Captain America, the first Avenger? Nope. Is it Aquaman? I think that's a thing. No, but that's the vibe. It's closer okay. <laughs> closer to the Aquaman than Captain America. But the film is set like in New Mexico in a small town in the American West. And it is sort of, the movie is sort of also kind of like a fish out of water comedy about a bunch of regular people on Earth hanging out with this fantastical superhero from another world. Oh, is it is it Thor? Yes. Okay. You've done it, Emmett. Congratulations. I see what you mean when you said he's kind of a folk hero from other stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the entirety of Norse mythology, perhaps. Hard to talk about. Well, I can't say he's a Norse mythology character. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. This article, for some reason, is taking issue with Loki's hair in this. He looks like Snape. That is what this article says. And what's wrong with that? The real issue, uh-huh. and I know this isn't a hairstyle, but the thing we need to be talking about is Chris Hemsworth's eyebrows in the first Thor. Wait. Because really? if anyone remembers, they have bleached his eyebrows blonde just for that one movie to match with like this long blonde wig they've given him. Oh, weird. 
and his beard as well it looks like it just looks insane like i feel like we have all blocked this out of our collective memory because it's just that one movie but it looks so bad honestly i gotta say he looks so much better with the short haircut from ragnarok i remember my mom saying that also and then pointing <laughs> pointedly looking at my brother who has long hair about how much better thor looked when he cut his hair <laughs> god that's hilarious as though we all would look like Chris Hemsworth yeah. if we cut our hair. Yeah, get get that cut, and you are going to immediately. No other work required. Instant Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> That's the only thing holding us back. Wow. Well, Brian, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Is there uh, anything you want to plug while you're here? Anywhere that people can find you online? Oh, no. Cool. We will be back... In 38 weeks, talking about Jordan Peele's Nope. And we will be back next week talking about Scream 4. (laughs) And and then, I guess on Friday, also doing our Scream finale, Scream ranking, and announcing our next series. Oh, oh yeah, because we're going to do the ranking because 5 isn't coming out for a long time. Yeah, till till next January. I forgot about that. Any predictions for Scream 4? Other than this standing prediction that I've been touting about it taking place entirely in a theater which who knows if this is even true i want to say that i was right in my prediction that Liev schreiber was going to die in the opening sequence from you the were, last your, one your dark prophecy came true i think scream 4 is going to be like about a group of high schoolers going through a similar thing as what Sydney and Gail and Dewey went through and them like coming in to help save them. Okay. I think it may be a little bit too soon, but I want to see Dewey and Gail have a kid. Mm. That is like what I want either from four or five is to see like their children and maybe their children get like involved in the action in some way. Interesting. I think that eventually we're going to see one of those three as the killer. I think that's where the series is leading. I was wondering if it was going to happen in this. I was too. Nothing else led me to believe this, but like I did think the option was open for Sydney to finally be the killer in this one. That's my thing kind of about five. And obviously we're talking out of turn since we haven't seen four yet. But like since they bring those three back for five and then everyone else is like a new young cast. Yeah. I kind of wonder, like, it seems like either they are going to kill one of them off for good, uh-huh. or they are going to have them be the killer. Yeah. Both of which has not happened at all in these first three. Excited to see what's coming down the line. Me too. Emma, anything you'd like to say here at the end of the episode? Well, don't trust film nerds, directors, uh-huh. or older brothers. And <laughs> stay frosted, everybody. <laughs> Cinema Bums is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week 